You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. A few years ago, a pastor, a lawyer, and an artist looked out over the state of our social and political landscape in our country, and they identified a breakdown. One political party claimed to be the party of Christian values, but failed to take social justice seriously, while the other party took social justice seriously, but had little to no regard for Christian values. And they looked out over the situation and they said, this is a false dichotomy. These should never be separated. We must hold to Christian values and do the work of redemptive justice to pursue integration in our social and political life. In fact, Christian values necessarily lead to redemptive justice. We need conviction and compassion, truth and love. We must hold together values-based policy and redemptive justice. And so the AND campaign was born to address this dichotomy. In the first century, the Apostle James looked across the Christian communities of his day, and he saw that some were focusing on maintaining an Orthodox Christian faith, but they neglected their neighbors, while others focused on doing good works, but they neglected their responsibility to maintain an Orthodox Christian faith. And James looked at this situation and he said, this is a false dichotomy. These should never be separated. We must hold to the true faith that is in Jesus Christ and do the good works to which God has called us. And so James launched his own and campaign in the form of a circular letter to address the dichotomy between hearing the word and doing the word, the dichotomy between faith and works. And if you listen to the cultural analysis that many Christian leaders are offering to us today, you might be led to believe that the greatest problem, the greatest threat to vital Christian witness in America is worldly secularism, the advance of godless ideologies and ways of life outside of the church. They claim that this worldly secularism is what's driving the decline of Christianity in America. But we can see from scripture and church history that the biggest obstacle to Christian witness in America is not worldly secularism, but a Christian syncretism that uncritically blends the Christian faith with the flag, the dollar, and the gun. This has led to the acceptance of a cultural Christianity that readily claims belief in Jesus Christ while ignoring how that faith is supposed to be worked out. Put another way, many professing Christians are self-deceived, thinking that they can have the security of the Christian faith while neglecting the purity of Christian ethics. But in our text for today, we come to the theological heart of the book of James in which he teaches us 
about the vital union, the inseparability of faith and works. And we're going to approach this text this morning through two points. Exposing false faith and embodying true faith. Exposing false faith and embodying true faith. So let's look at our first point. Exposing false faith. Now our passage opens up with a direct address to the readers that raises the question of the efficacy of a faith devoid of deeds. James has already alluded to this theme earlier in the letter as we have talked about it in the previous sermons that have been in the series. But in this section, we get this extended treatment from James on this subject. And James leaves us in no doubt concerning the central theme of this central part of the book. Three separate times in the course of his argument in this passage, James gives it to us clearly. Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. James is like, can you hear me now? Are you picking up what I'm putting down? Are you... Are you tracking with me? This is the clear theme of this section. And in verses 14 through 17, this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now I want you to notice something very important in this passage. Notice carefully what James says. James does not say if someone has faith but has not works. That's not what he says. He says if someone claims to have faith, but does not have works. We can see here in James that a claim to faith is not the same thing as true faith. And once again, James is pushing hard against presumption by calling us to self-examination as it relates to both hearing the word and doing the word, connecting faith and works. And by posing the rhetorical question, can that faith save him, which assumes a no answer, James teaches us that faith without works is not only useless for the individual, can this faith save? Expected answer, no. How do I know that? Because in the Greek text, the Greek grammar demands a no answer. It's a conditional clause. You can ask Dr. Answer, Pastor Joel, or soon-to-be Dr. Paul Major about that. They are very helpful on thinking through the technicalities, and I would also be glad to meet with you. But it expects a no answer. James shows that this kind of faith is not only worthless for the individual because it cannot save 
on the day of judgment. But through his following illustration, he shows that such faith is also useless for the community because it does nothing to address human need. Faith, we see in James, is not revealed by theological command. So don't be impressed with people who know theology. Don't be impressed. It's another discipline, just like any discipline that y'all went to study in grad school or whatever. Don't be impressed with that. James wasn't. Faith is not revealed by theological command, theological command, but by relational fidelity to God and neighbor. That's how faith is revealed. And I want you to understand James's argument. Okay? He's making an argument here. And, and, and this is important. Like when you come to reading and understanding the Bible, one thing that you have to pay careful attention to is not just proof texting your ideas. You, you, this is what proof texting sounds like. Oh, you know, Jesus talked a lot about love, so it's all good out there. Get specific. What is the flow of argumentation that happens? How are ideas connected and developed through the course of a writing? I want you to see that James is not arguing that works must be added to faith. That's not what he's arguing. He's arguing that true faith will necessarily reveal itself in good works because good works are the essential expression of true faith. Good works are the inevitable fulfillment and consummation of true faith. New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it this way. Trying to add works to a bogus faith is an exercise in futility. For only by accepting the implanted word and experiencing the inner transformation that it brings can one produce works pleasing to God. You see the distinction there? There's a difference between holding a true faith and trying to tack on good works to a bogus faith. It's the difference between a real apple tree producing apples versus trying to staple apples onto some other tree. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying add some works to your bogus faith. He's saying you need to investigate whether or not you have true faith. Don't presume just because you grew up in church. Don't presume because you know a lot about the Christian faith. Don't presume because you've been in the mix of Christian culture and church attendance for a long time. Do the inner work and ask the question whether or not you have true faith. And how you will know is that true faith shows up in good works. James is telling his hearers, if your faith does not benefit others, it will not benefit you either. Say that again. If your faith does not benefit others, then it will not benefit you because it will reveal itself to be a bogus faith, a false faith. Now, in our text, the illustration that James uses in his argument is one relative to the poor and marginalized, seeing the poor and marginalized and offering them a a nice, uh, did y'all see that bug? And the devil's at work this morning trying to get me up here, throw me off, right? Okay, James uses this illustration of someone who is poor and marginalized 
and just verbalizing some pieties toward them, but not doing anything to relieve them. And he says, that right there is bogus faith. But you realize this is an example that can be played out in multiple scenarios. James just as easily could have said, if a brother or sister is suffering and in pain, and one of you says to them, cheer up, without being present to care for them and to support them, what good is that? James could have said, if a brother or sister is being oppressed or abused, and one of you says to them, hang in there, without doing what's in your power to address the institutions, systems, and policies that perpetuate their oppression and abuse, what good is that? He could run through any number of scenarios to show you how a non-working faith is useless and dead. When it comes to faith and works from God's perspective, neither is real without the other. Take a look at verse 16. Verse 16 reads like this. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Now, here's the thing. James isn't taking issue with the statement itself. It's not the statement that is reprehensible. But rather, it's functioning as a religious cover for the failure to act. We must beware of uttering pious statements as a cover for neglecting the work of mission. It's so easy to do. You utter some pious irrelevancies for that person in their moment of need. And it makes you feel better. It makes you feel holy. It makes you feel right. But if that faith is not acting to relieve, it's useless. Now, for anybody familiar with the New Testament, this can immediately raise a series of questions, can't it? Doesn't this passage conflict with what the Apostle Paul teaches about faith alone and Christ alone? Pastor, I heard you say that umpteen times. And it seems like James is in conflict. Isn't this a contradiction? Here's the deal. The first thing that I would encourage you to do is to understand what James is saying and teaching on his own terms. Don't read James through the lens of Paul before you understand Paul on his own terms. In fact, in doing the research behind this, one of the most premier New Testament scholars made the point that it is often the case that we prioritize Paul, which causes us to put James kind of in the... James is in, it's like, you know, the motorcycle that the guy's on a motorcycle and there's someone in the little side of car. And they're like, ee, ee. He's, it's kind of like that idea. That's where we put James. And he says that causes us to abuse the text. We have to understand James on his own terms because you know why? James wrote this book before Paul became a Christian. He was a leader in the church. While Paul was still trying to kill Christians, he was respected all around, particularly by the Jewish Christians, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, which was the center of the church at the time. And Paul came in later 
and they had, they had different ministries and they had different considerations and different approaches to the issues that they were facing. So understand James on his own terms. That's the only way we can rightly relate James's teaching to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. And you need to know that any perceived difference between James and Paul is superficial. And it results from Paul and James having different concerns, different backgrounds, and different audiences with different problems. Think about it. Remember, James did his work primarily to his countrymen according to the flesh, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jews. And Paul was called by the Lord to be the apostle to the Gentiles. They had different audiences. And those different audiences brought different pastoral necessities, different pastoral concerns. Faith is no less important to James than it is to Paul. And it's precisely because faith is so important to the Apostle Paul and the, and the, and the Apostle James that James harshly condemns a false variety of faith. That he cares about faith. It's not like James cares about works and Paul cares about faith. James's great interest is in true faith. So he must expose false faith. Paul and James are not crossing swords in conflict with one another. They're not crossing swords in conflict with one another. They're more like Charlie's Angels back to back. <laughs> and they're facing different opponents or different errors that are trying to come in to corrupt the understanding of the Christian church. In his writings, Paul teaches that we are saved by faith alone in order to deny the efficacy of pre-conversion works in getting us right with God. That is Paul's great aim. Paul is trying to say, you cannot work your way up to God. You cannot climb your way up to God. You cannot perform in such a way that you impress God. And he says, wow, well, come on into my heaven, right? Paul is trying to shut that down. He says, your only hope is the grace of the Lord. It is faith alone, reliance upon the, the perfect person and work of Jesus Christ that brings you into a saving relationship with God. But James is teaching his people about the absolute necessity of post-conversion works as an essential expression of that same faith. The justifying faith that Paul describes is the working faith that James describes. They are one and the same faith. They are different sides of the same coin. You know how we can have a truncated view of grace where we understand the forgiveness of grace, but we don't understand the transforming power of grace? It's fuller than we imagined. And what we see in this textual diversity in the teaching of the scriptures is that they complement one another and fill out our understanding of what true faith actually is and entails so that we can then do the inner work to discover whether or not we have it. And if we don't, to repent and turn our hearts to the Lord so that we can actually live in that true faith and receive it. And if you're still wondering whether or not Paul and James are in conflict with one another, just remember, different words in the Bible have different shades of meaning. 
And Paul used the word justify in a different way from the way that James uses the word justify. But on a more practical level, I want to ask you to consider something if you're still wondering whether Paul and James are in conflict with one another. Just consider this question. Do you really gather from Paul's writings that one can have true faith without a changed life of good works? Does Paul in any way seem to indicate that to you? Do you really gather from Paul's writings that one can have true faith without, without living for the glory of God and the good of neighbor? Do you gather from Paul's writings that one can have true faith in God while consistently refusing to do what God calls you to do? If you read the Apostle Paul carefully, you will recognize that he and James are not in conflict. They are complementary. It's an interpretive error to suggest that Paul had no concern with putting the faith into practice, I should add. Just pull one, one verse from Paul, and it fits right into the argument that he's making. In Ephesians 2, for grace, it's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You ready? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul and James, fist bump, blow it up. That's how they relate to one another. <laughs> the complementary framings of James and Paul are actually a gift to the church when each of these apostles is understood on their own terms, understand with respect to their various social, ecclesial, missional, and rhetorical contexts, that's when we see the blend. It's, it, they, they fit together like puzzle pieces because the divine author breathed the word in each of them. Beginning with verse 18, James shifts to a rhetorical device to further drive his point home. Take a look at verse 18. I want you to see what he's doing here. What James is doing here is he's creating an imaginary debate partner or an interlocutor who articulates representative positions on this theme of faith within the church. The imaginary objector points out that some people have faith and others have works and each side can legitimately stand on their own as viable ways of being Christian. And James refutes this thinking. He says that the essential working nature of true faith is not up for theological debate. He won't let anyone get away with well, that's just your interpretation, James. To argue that true faith can safely refuse to do good works is folly, according to James. It's the opposite of wisdom. He's saying that this perspective doesn't understand the nature of true faith and is not discerning the difference between true faith and false faith. 
He's exposing the error of this false faith for us. And the second half of verse 18, again, is key to understanding James's point. One cannot show faith by any means other than works. And thus faith and works cannot be separated. Do you see what James says here? He says, let me look at the text just to make sure I say it right. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. And the implication is you can't. You can't show me your faith. But I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, what he's saying is that the good works are the confirming and verification, the confirmation and the verification of true faith. It's the deeds that reveal. And without deeds, there is nothing to speak for your faith. There's nothing to speak for your faith. In verse 19, we get the next phase of James's argument. James challenges the false notion that faith is simply an acceptance of doctrine. Now, probably the defining teaching of both Judaism and Christianity in the context of the Greco-Roman world was the doctrine that there is only one true God. It's known as the Shema, and it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. And the reason why it's called the Shema is because in Hebrew it says, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is Lord alone. That was their central confession in the Jewish faith, and in early Christianity. This was a central, creedal conviction here. But the specific doctrine in question is not the issue. James would say, of course I believe this. I'm a faithful Jew. But what good is mere intellectual agreement with that theological truth? What good is that? Look at verse 19, because James is about to take it all the way. <laughs> he says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Can you hear the irony of James here? Oh, you believe orthodox ideas? Good for you. So do the demons. At least they have the good sense to tremble before their divine judge. What good do you think their orthodoxy will do them on the day of judgment? He actually presents orthodoxy devoid of works as demonic. <laughs> James actually presents orthodoxy devoid of works as demonic. That's a hard word. It seems harsh. But James makes his point clearly. Your version of faith, devoid of works, is no better than the faith of demons. The demons know the scriptures. 
Satan quoted scripture when he tempted Jesus. The demons know the creeds. They know the confessions. But the Lord has something better in mind for you than the naked, lonely, worksless faith of demons. True faith does not, indeed cannot, rest content with holding orthodox ideas to the neglect of good works. And I think it goes without saying that emulating the faith of demons does not put you in a very good situation. And that is the, the stark point that James is making to his people. Neither faith nor works, isolated from one another, is pleasing to the Lord. This speaks not only to church people, to challenge church folk, who are more often guilty of holding orthodoxy without seeing the resulting actions that should flow from that orthodoxy, but outsiders are often found with works devoid of faith. And that corollary, the inverse of this is also true. Works without faith is dead. It's dead. Because what those works generally boil down to is some egocentric attempt to either look good or to control things or to manage people's perceptions of you to make yourself feel better about other parts of your life that aren't really going well. What I'm saying is that our Christian theology leads us to think through that issue of good works, works done by our non-Christian neighbors as we can appreciate whatever common grace there is there and celebrate the good that our non-Christian neighbors do, truly. Remember what we said before, that we should live in critical solidarity with all that is good and beautiful in the world around us, but also in prophetic critique of all that is corrupting in the culture around us. We can recognize the good, but what we're trying to say is that is not going to put you in, in right standing with God. And if you investigate your, emo your motives and your, your desires and the things going on beneath the surface, you'll find some really ugly stuff in there. We're not, we're not none of us are beyond using people in order to make ourselves look good or in order to protect ourselves from the cancel crowd, right? Well, they can't say nothing about me. I went to the Black Lives Matter rally, right? Gets into those motives. Again, the inner work is crucial here. What's going on in here? In verses 21 through 26, James makes a biblical case for his exposition of faith illustrated in the lives of Abraham and Rahab. And we see that the true faith by which Abraham was justified in Genesis 15 was the faith made visible by his obedience in Genesis 22. God declared Abraham righteous because he took God at his word. He believed God. And Genesis 15 says, and God considered him, counted it to him as righteousness. But what James is saying is that the state, the, the state of James, of Abraham's true faith was tested and revealed 
when God called him to sacrifice his only son. That is where his faith, his true faith, was revealed. It was in his deeds. It was in his actions. And then in verse 25, I love it. He could have picked Moses. He could have picked Joshua. He could have picked David. He could have picked any of the other heroes of the Bible, even though they're not heroes. There's one hero of the Bible. His name's Jesus, period. The rest are jacked up and in need of Jesus. Okay? And they're there for our encouragement because you and I, jacked up as we are, can find our way home too. Summary of the Bible story. <laughs> but I love that James chooses Rahab. He chooses a woman, which is beautiful and important because he shows that true faith is not just a boys club thing. And the sisters have dignity and value and they teach us and they model what true faith looks like for us. So gentlemen, let's pay attention. And let's honor and let's respect and dignify and see our sisters as co-laborers in the faith, not junior varsity. Just a quick word. I love that he chose Rahab. But Rahab, if you remember back to the story, back in the book of Joshua, Rahab was an inhabitant of Jericho who became convinced of basic doctrine through the reports of God's mighty acts on behalf of Israel. She heard the word about the Lord. She had very basic, minimal doctrine. She didn't know anything about atonement. She didn't know anything about the munis triplex or the status duplex or consequent absolute necessity in the atonement, right? If you didn't understand any of that, don't worry. I'm making a point. <laughs> she didn't have command of all of the theology but the little that she knew, she acted on. This is her statement of faith in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11. This was the statement. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That's the simple statement of her faith. That later writers of, of the scriptures were glad to acknowledge and identify as an example of faith. Rahab is in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Imagine that. And James points to her as an example of true faith. But look, she didn't have much doctrine. She had one little piece. The Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That simple. And on the ground of this faith that didn't have much information or deep theology, she acted. When the spies from Israel came into Jericho, Rahab hid them when the king was looking for them and eventually helped them to escape by lowering them on a rope from the roof of her house. Now think about this, James's choice. He could have chosen any other examples. But he chooses Abraham and Rahab. Abraham and Rahab could not have been more different socially. But they both shared a true faith that resulted in good works before God. James is showing us that the nature of true faith is faithful action. We see it in both a patriarch and a prostitute. And it's beautiful. In verse 26, James pulls no punches. 
For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This faith devoid of deeds is not just deficient. It's not just immature. It's not sick or in danger of dying. It is a corpse. It is a corpse. Again, if you presume that you're a Christian just because you say you are, or just because you're sincere, but your acts, your, your life does not demonstrate the works that accompany true faith, you need to seek the Lord's face in repentance and humility and cry out to him to give you the grace of true faith. That's the message. Do the inner work. Don't presume just because your history is decorated with Christian church association. There's a lot at stake in how we think about faith and works, hearing and doing. There's a lot at stake. Simply put, a faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. Get it? A faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. It doesn't give you what you think it does. It doesn't offer or secure you like you might think it does. In fact, it's self-delusion. It's self-delusion. There's a lot at stake in this connection between true faith and good works. This false faith, it undermines witness and it misrepresents Christ. This false faith is like character assassination of the Lord. Because you are naming yourself as one of his, naming yourself as someone who represents him, and then you go on to completely misrepresent him through passivity and detachment from your neighbors in their dire needs. It undermines witness and misrepresents Christ. It's self-delusion, and it gives you false security. It's that, you know, it's been mentioned all the time in broader evangelicalism, the whole fire insurance Christianity. I just need to get my ticket punched so I can go to heaven. And if I say I believe in Jesus, then I'm good to go. And I can just basically live life according to my own dictates and do whatever I want. And you can't judge me, right? You, you know how people say you can't judge me? How many of y'all heard someone say you can't judge me? How many of you heard someone follow that up with, only God can judge me? And how many of you have thought in your head, and that's a comfort to you? The one who can see into your heart, the one you cannot fool, the one who sees all your motives, who knows exactly why you did what you did, how you did it, when you did it, and what you failed to do. He knows it all, baby. And that's the one you would rather be judged by than me? Only God can judge me is one of the most sobering ideas that should wake you up. To take this seriously. 
But what else is at stake in this false faith? It harms and deforms the covenant community, particularly our children. Because if they aren't seeing the true faith embodied by you, then they grow up vulnerable to the idea that Christianity is a sham. Because if it didn't do anything in the Christian people I was around, then what good is it? They're actually echoing the argument of James. Our kids need to see the real deal. They need to see the real deal in us. And I want to be clear. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It means you need to be repentant. And you need to confess your sins and your need of Jesus. And they need to see you seeking new obedience and submission to the Lord and what his word clearly teaches. Rather than trying to maneuver and get the text to say what you want it to say because it makes your life more comfortable in this modern world. That's a hard thing for all of us. We all have issues that we wish the Bible said something different on. Man, you know how much easier my life as a pastor would be if some of those uncomfortable teachings of the Bible weren't there? This church might be ten times bigger than it is right now. But people ain't vibing with a lot of that stuff. This is what our children need to see in us. And that's what commends the glory of God and the beauty of God. And that's what helps them to see the joy of God in this life of faith and formation and following. This is at stake when it comes to false faith. But false faith also harms our neighbors by confirming their negative suspicions about the Christian faith and Christian people. And it wounds our neighbors by sins of omission. Now, some of you are familiar with this category. Some of you may not be. But you know that sin is not just the bad things that you actively do in rebellion against God and disobedience to God. It's the good things that you fail to do, that he's called you to do. And a lot of times we think of our sins as victimless crimes, especially our sins of omission. But you are hurting your neighbors who would otherwise receive the relief that you would give. It wounds our neighbors. James has exposed false faith. But let's talk about embodying the true faith, which brings us to our final point. Embodying the true faith. Here's the thing, and I want you to understand this. The connection between faith and works is really about love. The connection between faith and works is really about love. A working faith is full of love. A non-working faith is devoid of love. And this is the primary reason why this connection is so important to James. Because James knows that this life is all about love. Because he's not in conflict with the Apostle John. Who says in his letter, 1 John, that if you see your brother in need and you don't do anything about it, how can the love of God be in you? James is like, 
blow it up with John, too. And, J and John puts that black and white because he doesn't want you to have this easy, comfortable ability to be like, oh, I'm all good. I'm good. No, no. He wants you to continue to attend to your inner life and to continue to strive and strain and sacrifice in your service to God and your neighbors. Because remember, these apostles, uh, those who are writing about the, the challenges and the sufferings of this life, you have to remember that they were much more eschatologically oriented than we are. Which is to say that our time horizon is often this week or this month. If I tell you in five years, you're like, forget it. That's a, I, I might as well forget about that. That's too far off. Their time horizon was eternity. And they knew that this life was just a short piece of our existence. God is eternal. We are what theologians call of eternal. Which is to say this. God is eternal in the past and he's eternal in the future, which means he had no beginning. He always was, and he always will be. We are not eternal in the past. We had a definite point at which we came into being, but we are eternal going forward. And that is the time horizon that the apostles kept in mind, that we have to remember that this life no matter what it's like, no matter the griefs or the sufferings we face, no matter the losses or the mourning we have to endure, the, the lamentation that we must lift up in this life, it's a vapor. And then after that is forever. And they want us to attend to our lives so that on that day of the Lord, when we are called to account, that Jesus will be able to identify us as sheep who fed him when he was hungry, who gave him drink when he was thirsty, who clothed him when he was naked, who came and visited him when he was in prison, who recognized his face in the face of the vulnerable and marginalized of this world. And that's why he gives us his teaching. And James doubled down, doubles down on that teaching. And he wants us to be aware of the way that true faith works. Love is at the center of this connection between true faith and good works. John Calvin asked a rhetorical question to this effect. Oh, Johnny, Jean Calvin, because he was a Frenchman, right? Y'all didn't know I could break it down like that. I can bust out the repertoire, right? Like, I'm cross-cultural, y'all. <laughs> This is what John Calvin says to this effect. Can faith be separated from the works of love? And he goes on to say, of course not. So how do we get this true faith? What do we do if we recognize false faith in our lives? Or we're concerned about the state of our faith right now? It always, family, it always and ever comes back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Always. Because here's the deal. The good news of the gospel 
is that Jesus showed us what true faith looks like by his life of active love. New Testament writers talk about the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. Not just faith in Christ, but the faith of Christ brings us redemption. Because when we read through the story of that life of Christ, when he walked this earth, we see that Jesus touched the untouchable, and he loved the unlovable, and he forgave the unforgivable, and he welcomed the undesirable, and he healed the unhealable, and he saved the otherwise unsavable because his faith in the Father was a true working faith. His entire life was marked by true faith, and the greatest work that emerged from his faith was his redemptive work at the cross. Aren't you glad that Jesus, when he encountered us in all of our brokenness, in our need, in the destitution of our hearts, aren't you glad that he didn't look at us and say, be warm, be fed, be saved, be free, without doing what was necessary to make it so? At the heart of the gospel is true faith working in love in the life of Jesus Christ. He truly trusted the Father, and this resulted in the great work of atonement, the great work of redemption, the great work of resurrection, and the great work of destroying the works of the devil. This is the motivation that should drive us to embody true faith through good works, but it is also the source of that true faith to begin with. True faith begins with Christ. It is carried along and motivated by Christ. And one day it will be rewarded by Christ. That is good news. That your labors are not in vain. That everything you do in Jesus' name is recognized and celebrated by your Father and by your older brother, Jesus. He wants you to be true children of the Father. So how do we work this out? What are some takeaways? I have some specific ones that I want you to take away. Very specific. Y'all ready? Members, I want you to get on the Grace Mosaic uh, members only part of our website and I want you to pull up our liturgical audit pull that out and I want to encourage you to fill that out and work through it specifically with the lens of hearing and doing faith and works because what Pastor Joel and I were striving to explore in the liturgical audit is not just a sliver of your life called your spiritual life, but the entirety of your existence, from your sleep patterns to your eating habits, the way you take care of your body, all of those different pieces. I want you to work through it from that lens of faith and works for all of your life. It's going to take you, if you're married, into marriage. 
Because, you know, hearing and doing the word can become another theoretical idea that we agree with but don't do. So work it out into the specifics. Husbands, are you doing toward your wife what the scriptures tell you to do? Are you loving your wife like Christ loves the church? And if not, are you repenting? Are you living with your wife in an understanding way as the scriptures teach us to? Wives, same deal. Are you seeking the scriptures to hear from the Lord and to follow with the necessary actions after that? Get specific. Think about formation and practices. It's like agreeing with the idea that prayer is important. But neglecting a very clear and and wonderful resource like the Daily Prayer Project and not getting into the rhythm and the habit of morning and evening prayer and engaging that with your community or with your family. Parenting. Um, This applies to all of us because, again, we're all godparents in God's church because we're a covenant community. So think about parenting. What do the scriptures have to say, not only about who our children are, but about our obligations and responsibilities toward our children and you can look back to Israel as the model what did the Lord tell Israel they were supposed to do it's supposed to pass the faith on from generation to generation you know what I hear there faith working through love toward our children I know you're tired when you come home from work but do not allow your fatigue to cause you to drop the ball on investing in your kids Investing specifically as it relates to the faith. Asking them questions about what they think. Reading God's word with them. Reading books with them. Praying with them. Singing our worship songs with them. The songs that we do on Sunday are not just meant for Sunday morning. Take those and help your kids to learn them and sing them so that when they come in here on Sunday mornings, they can be a blessing to everyone else. Last Sunday was such a blessing. To hear the kids singing in the song twos. Joy, spontaneous joy burst in my heart. It's beautiful. We ought to be making those investments because that's what true faith does in parenting. Praise and worship. Now listen, this is an important one. Because, you know, a week from today, there's this little football game that's going to happen. And here's what's interesting. Many of us have been formed for stoicism in Christian worship. A stoicism that could not be further from the scriptures, (laughs) even though we tell ourselves, oh, it's just the way I am. But then you get into a context where something exciting happens, like a little football game. And it, it just shows you your emotional range. And if you're not accessing that emotional range in worship, It's because you're following the lead of your sluggish emotions rather than telling your sluggish emotions what they need to be doing with respect to the glorious truths that we're singing about. If anyone who's not a Christian were to come in here and see the way they worship, would they be convinced that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Would they be convinced that your Savior sits at the right hand of the Father to plead your case. 
Would they be convinced that God is a, a refuge for those who are hurting and grieving and mourning their losses? Would they see that in you? Would they get a sense that in God's right hand are pleasures forevermore? That he delights to give to his people. Would they get that from the way you worship? Or would they look at you and gather that, you know, it's an intellectual exercise to come to Christian worship. That maybe you got some good ideas, but your hands seem to be stuck in your pockets or glued to your side. I want to tell you, this is not about manipulation. This is about following the scriptures. It's what we call the regulative principle in reformed worship. And if you don't have a clue of what I just said right there, you want to grab a cup of coffee, let's do that. Which is to say that we try to follow everything that the Bible says we ought to do. So what do we do when the scriptures say, clap your hands, O you people. Shout to the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. To give him his praise. To affirm the truth when you hear it. To celebrate it, to revel in it so that it so that it digests, so that it settles into your soul. It's got to hit you at praise and worship level. It's got to get into cross-cultural living and loving. Because a, a misunderstanding that many people have is this. They believe that because they became a part of a cross-cultural church, that the work is done. But I want to tell you that Grace Mosaic is the beginning of your cross-cultural journey, not the end. Because now we have to figure out how to live in love together. And now we have to figure out and readjust and reorient ourselves to the fact that we do much better in a cross-cultural community in terms of gaining the wisdom, the life skills, the encouragement, the kind of Christian depth that we need. We do much better in a cross-cultural community than we do in an affinity community where everyone thinks like us and shares our blind spots and affirms all of our idolatries because they have the same ones. You need people outside to be like, hmm, you know, from where I'm sitting, I, I would be thinking differently about that. You, that's what you need. Don't believe the lie that you can only flourish if you have community with like, like people, same life stage or whatever. You know what? If you're single or you're married with no children, one of the greatest blessings that can happen for you is to be a part of a family that is going to let you in so that you can see how they do. They share their life with you. And married people with kids, one of the greatest blessings you can have is to bring our single brothers and sisters and our married without children brothers and sisters into your family because you need them. They have so much to offer you, so much to give you. We need each other. And cross-cultural community is not something that happens passively. You don't come to appreciate and understand the concerns of the various members of your, of your community through passivity. So we need to understand what our black brothers and sisters have to live with and the way that they try to live out their faith. You need to understand and seek wisdom and do your own work, not depend on them to be your lecturer on all things pertaining to black folk. Go watch some movies, listen to some music, read some books. We need to do the same for our Jewish brothers and sisters. We need to do the same, brothers, for our sisters. 
We need to listen. We need to understand what it feels like to live life through their eyes. Whatever vulnerabilities they feel, whatever ways they feel neglected, unheard, or sidelined, we need to appreciate that to live in cross-cultural community. We need to do it for our, for our brothers and sisters from Korea and China and Thailand and Japan and Cambodia and Malaysia and you name it. Whoever's in our community making it our goal to understand so that we can live that life of love together. Becoming a part of a cross-cultural church is just the beginning. And I want to say this in love because it's important for a cross-cultural community. And we need to be able to have these kinds of conversations. To my white brothers and sisters, we have to recognize that when it comes to cross-cultural community, one of the challenges is that without proactivity, a cross-cultural community can end up just reflecting the dominant culture, which would be your culture. And so we need to be, we need to be aware of our longings and you know, our, um, how we analyze what's happening in the church. And we need to celebrate the decentering that needs to happen in order to see Jesus in the center and us all from our various cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds gathered around that center. That's important. But also justice. James cares a lot about it and, and the liturgical audit. Y'all, it, it's meant to get into that as well, but it's, it's going to force you to wrestle with a lot of the difficult questions concerning True faith and works, hearing and doing the word, and it's meant to reflect a holistic approach to all of your life. Pray for the Lord to give you wisdom and repentance for all of life so that you can embody the true faith of the scriptures. And if you're not a member of Grace Mosaic, we would love to put that liturgical audit in your hands. So all you have to do is drop us an email. You can send an email to ashley at gracemosaic.org or joel at gracemosaic.org. They're like, mind you, you can send it to pastor at gracemosaic.org as well. <laughs> they cussing me right now. That's all right. That's all right. We want to get that resource in your hands. It'll help you. Work through that. If you take that seriously, I promise you, there will be areas of life that you, are, you, you face exposure and it gives you an opportunity to do the work, right? Let the Grace Mosaic community be an and campaign in Northeast D.C. by embodying our faith through deeds of love. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.